You're listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast, an elder-led ministry of Believer's Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and knowledge of God's people. My name is Tyler Jones. I'm your host. Thanks for listening in, whoever you may be and wherever you may be. May the Lord bless this podcast to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth. On the podcast today is Jason Rowland. He's the senior pastor and one of our elders here at Believer's Baptist Church. And another of our elders, Philip Castleton. Um, And we are looking at the doctrines of grace this month. So with that said, we are on the second part of this series. Um, If you haven't listened to the first, you might go back and listen to last week's episode, which aired on September 2nd, I believe, um, about radical depravity. But today, the question of the day is, what is unconditional election? All right. So as Tyler just said, this is the second part in the series that we're doing on the doctrines of grace. And it's important, again, that we establish what the doctrines of grace are. These are not new teachings that have come up in recent years. These are the biblical teachings that go all the way back to Jesus, the apostles, all through Scripture, you see these teachings. The Reformation um, brought these back into focus. They had been lost during the Middle Ages of church history. And so the fact that these truths are brought back during the Reformation, and you have Luther being the main reformer in Germany, you have John Calvin being the main reformer in France and Switzerland, John Knox being the reformer in Scotland. And so the reformers then brought back to focus the doctrines of grace. And then, of course, through history, that has been what the church has taught. And then the church began to get away from it uh, in time, and it seems likely... um, for the last hundred years that the ideas of the doctrines of grace have been totally left out of the common preaching and teaching of Protestantism, um, particularly in the Southern Baptist life. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, when you start bringing these things back to the surface and try to discuss them and try to bring them into the regular diet of scriptural teaching that you bring to the people, uh, they're rejected, and they're not seen as um, legitimate. They are seen, as we said in our last podcast, podcast, they are seen even as being evil, Mm -hmm. and those who promote them would be evil. And so uh, we've experienced that personally. Um, You know, we've experienced the rejection that comes just because we have tried to hold to these things. Corporately and and individually, we've experienced the kind of um, rejection that comes. But these are important doctrines. They bring into focus the grace of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God. And so it's important for us to discuss these things. So we're going to discuss now unconditional election. Last podcast was radical depravity, and this one... Unconditional election has probably the most pushback, I would say, uh, because most people don't understand the full scope uh, of radical depravity. But when you start talking about unconditional election, the idea that, that God 
in his sovereignty and in his sovereign will has made choice of particular sinners not based on any foreseen response. Mm -hmm. When you start talking about that, then there's a huge pushback. So I know last time we started with a definition that you had from one of our writers and uh, pastors, preachers, uh, circuit uh, preachers that we follow, Steve Lawson. Mm -hmm. So you have a a definition that he gives. Yes. Uh, It goes like this. Long before Adam sinned, God had already decreed and determined salvation for sinners. In eternity past, the Father chose a people in Christ who would be saved. Before time began, God elected many from among mankind whom he purposed to save save from his wrath. This selection was not based upon any foreseen faith in those whom he chose, nor was it prompted by the inherent goodness. Instead, according to his infinite love and inscrutable wisdom, God set his affection upon his elect. The Father gave the elect to the Son to be his bride. Each one chosen was predestined by the Father to be conformed to the image of his Son and to sing his praises forever. The Father commissioned His Son to enter the world and lay down His life to save those uh, those same chosen ones. Likewise, the Father commissioned the Spirit to bring these same elect ones to faith in Christ. The Son and the Spirit freely concurred in all these decisions, making salvation the undivided work of the triune God. Right. So we had mentioned in our last podcast that we were going to bring to emphasis the fact that this is a Trinitarian work mm-hmm. that God has chosen or elected a people. And so this is going to be the father electing a people that he is going to give to the son who secures their salvation by his atoning death. Right. And we'll talk more uh, about the the Trinitarian unity and purpose in salvation as we in probably the next podcast in right. limited atonement. Right. Um, but But definitely this is a Trinitarian work. Okay, so the pot, the rather the definition that you just read in, in summary is the idea that salvation is given to certain individuals before the foundation of the world based on God's choice, His will, and it is not based on anything foreseen. Their response of obedience, their response of faith. On the contrary, God gives faith. And he gives repentance to each one that he selects. And these acts, that is faith and repentance, are the result, not the cause, then, of God's choice. So God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the basis of salvation. Yes. In fact, <clears throat> that that brings up something that we might want to make clear. Uh, a distinction um, that us as reformed, uh, and that's the category we'd put people who hold the doctrines of grace in to some extent. They call it being reformed. But um, the distinction here between us and those who who would hold a an Arminian uh, or synergistic type understanding of salvation um, is that for us, we believe the Bible teaches that regeneration precedes faith. And they would believe that faith precedes regeneration. So a man acts, um, you know, of his own free will and, 
and he acts in faith toward a gospel call. And when he does, then God re- reacts to him and provides for him a, n- a new life in, in Christ to, to be born again, as John 3 would say. We would say the distinction is just the opposite. Because of his fallen nature and his inability to respond to God positively, that's another thing I wanted to make clear. It's not that the total inability or radical inability means that man doesn't respond to God. He always responds to God. He just never responds favorably toward God. He always responds in the negative. But regeneration, God does a work in whom he wills, in his people, those whom he, he has chosen without respect to anything in them, without any foreseen faith. But he acts in them, creating and giving faith and repentance like you just said. Right. So people who would um, argue that... God doesn't choose would would come to this kind of understanding that God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing mm-hmm. that they would that person would respond to God's call right. and that he selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel so therefore, election would be determined or conditioned on what man would do and not what God would do. You were talking just a moment ago, and immediately what came to my mind is God being a reactor versus God being an initiator. Yes. Well, th- we get the cart before the horse there, obviously, right? right. Um, so if uh, you're, you're, you're trying to get the cart before the horse, if you think that, that God looked down the corridors of time and... And, and made a decision. Another thing that is problematic with that view, just from a logical standpoint, was what would be the necessity of choosing someone that has already chosen you? The uh, election, it, it makes no sense if it's in the context of you choosing him first. Uh, well, just leave it alone and let him choose, you know, let the individual choose God, right? right? If that's right. the way it works, there's no point in God choosing them. But that's not what Scripture represents. Right. In fact, uh, that that um, understanding of God's uh, looking down the corridor of time is a misunderstanding and a misreading, uh, a misapplication of Romans chapter 8, um, where it says this. Can well, we well, go there? Okay, well, wait. let's do this. Let's establish the fact that all through Scripture, beginning with the Old Testament, mm-hmm. God has chosen people. Sure, go for it. Yeah. So God has chosen people in Genesis where he chooses Isaac, mm-hmm. he chooses Jacob, he chooses Abraham, he chooses Joseph. Chose Noah. He chose Noah. Um, these are just brief examples. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can know from Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, God says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as they are this day. That is, God chose the nation of Israel and he chose particular people within the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. He chose people outside of the nation of Israel, uh, Rahab, Ruth, two Gentiles that we could um, bring into our understanding of choosing. And so the, the point being that God has always chosen and it has been God's pattern. 
And we can find in Matthew 22 that no one, uh, rather four many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew eleven twenty seven does say no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Mm-hmm. So the idea of choosing is not foreign to Scripture at all. No. And I think what we want to make sure that people realize as we speak about it, again, um, it's not comprehensive and it's not inexhaustible, but hopefully we're helping um, get some clarity to this. The The idea of choosing is basic to our understanding of unconditional election when we talk about the doctrines of grace. Right. So how do we define unconditional? Well, and that's that's the key here, because if you're going to be biblical, even, even the Arminian uh, would say, Okay, uh, election's written everywhere in Scripture, so you have to have some kind of doctrine of election. The problem is most um, people's doctrine of election, I think, is sub-biblical because it, it, it forces God into this situation to where it, it's called the prescient view, right? A, a pre-knowledge view. Mm-hmm. He looks down the corridors of time, and um, he sees what you will do, and then he makes a decision. He reacts to what he knows you will do and sees what you will do, which, by the way, if we were going to get into an, uh, an articulation of issues with free will, th- this also provides problems for free will. Right. But he looks down the corridors of time and makes a decision based on that, and, and therefore, but, but that's not what we're trying to articulate here. No, and how does that, though, I know I'm interrupting your mm-hmm. thought, Philip, but how does that even um, intersect with God choosing Abraham? God choosing Moses, God choosing David. It, it, it wasn't that that he could look down through the corridors of time and think, well, Moses is going to do this, or David's going to respond this way, or Isaac's going to respond this way. Well, you know, it's interesting about that, especially like in, in, with regards to Abraham or something. I mean, you know, how would Abraham have ever known who God was had God not revealed himself right. to Abraham, right? Exactly. Uh, it, that, yeah, none it, of it that... was not based on a response that Abraham would have. No. It was God revealing himself, initiating the, the revelation of himself to Abraham. Right. Right. So anyway, to say all that, because of my interrupted you, no, it's okay. you were answering the question, what unconditional is. Yeah, that's the key, uh, that, uh, especially with, with regards to Reformed theology, we, we would understand that that election must be unconditional. Um, and so, and the Bible says as much. Um, first, let's go and let's try to answer um, the objection that the person might have who believes that foreknowledge is, is God looking down the corridors of time. Let's go there. The text is in Romans 8, and, um, and it says this in verse 29. And by the way, this, this, it starts with the word for, which is a response. Uh, like it, This means because. And, and, and it's, uh, the, this references back to verse 28. We know, we know that, uh, that, those, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In, in essence, God is working in all things, in essence. He is, he's in all things. God is working, and he's working together. Uh, he's working, bringing about good. Not that the activity itself is good, but he's going to bring about a good result, an end result that is good in those people whom he's called according to his purpose. We know this in verse 29 because, because, this is why, those whom 
he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first born among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. That's the statement. Well, I would, I would, make, I would bring to your attention the first... Uh, those he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. All of those things, God does. There's, you're not in any of those things, right? From beginning to end. God is the one who foreknows. God is the one who predestines. God is the one who uh, calls. God is the one who justifies. God is the one who glorifies. But here, here's where th- th- this idea of foreknowledge can be tossed out the window because we can recognize the action here. For those um, whom he foreknew. This is a verb. This foreknowing is a verb. And the action is on a person. It says those whom he foreknew. Here's what most people read into the text. Whether they actually read it there or not. This is what they think when they read the text. They say those, um, for those that he foreknew what they would do. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. For those whom God looked down the corridor of time and knew that they would believe, those he predestined. But it doesn't say that. No. It doesn't, the, the action here of knowing has nothing to do with the person's actions. It has to do with the person itself. Mm-hmm. The, that, we call that isogesis. Yes, we do. We, that we is read reading into the, into the text what, what is it, our presupposition is. Yeah. And so we, if we come to the text and we, and we don't let it speak for itself, but we read into it what notion we want, we're not going to see that the action here is on the person. We're going to see that the action is on what the person did. But the text just doesn't say that. The text says that, that the, the, action, the, the action of foreknowing is on a person. Now, it, this is the same idea of Adam knowing his wife, right? right. The idea um, of, of God knowing Israel. Interesting enough, this is, where, uh, this is one of the things that I think brings clarity, at least for me. He says to Israel, you only have I known of all the nations of the earth, okay? Well, if it means foreknowledge in the sense that I look down the corridors of time, then it makes no sense because he knows all the other nations. God knows all the other nations. He's the one who's created all the nations. Right. So if, if, if that's what it means, then this, the, the sense of this is, it, well, there's no sense to it at all. It's confusing. If what he means there is you alone of all the nations, have I chosen to have an intimate relationship with? You alone have I set aside for myself to love in a way that's distinctly different than all the other nations. The same way that when Adam went in and knew his wife, he had a relationship with her that was distinct from the relationship he had with the animals or the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was unique to her. The same thing's being said here. For those whom he foreknew. This is a group of people who God has chosen to love to cast his affections and his care upon, to have an intimate relationship with. And then he says from there, that group of people, irrespective of anything they'll do, that's not even in the text, he predestines to be conformed to the image of his son. And then the idea here is that the the confirmation of us to the image of Christ, it happens at the end of our salvation when we are glorified and made like him. So he, he, has, he predestined us all the way to the end of our salvation, which is exactly the rest of the text. Then it tells us how we get there. He calls us with an effectual calling, 
right? Right. He justifies us. He declares us righteous in Christ, imputing Christ's righteousness to us and and, and our own sin and unworthiness to Christ um, on the cross, right? So he, he, he effectually calls, he justifies us, and then he brings us all the way to glorification and makes us like his son. So we see this. All these works, this this picture of salvation, this doctrine of salvation, from beginning to end, a work of Christ on those whom He chose to cast His affections. Right, and there are there there, there are no conditions. So unconditional means that the condition is not based in the person, in man. Yes, right. there there undoubtedly there are conditions, but we don't know what they are. Rome, I mean Ephesians one would say that He does all things. It's speaking about salvation. Right. He says He works all those things according to the counsel of His will. So it's we don't know what those conditions are. Except for that we're told that they're not in man. Right. And Ephesians 1 says that to the praise of his glory and grace. Yes. So to be clear, it's not conditions that are found in man. Now, Philip, uh, I can imagine somebody listening and they are saying, that's not fair. Well, they might. Um, you know what? Let's let's just talk about that. Romans 9. Go uh, One more. This is a sustained argument, by the way. If you were to work your way through this text, um, and we'll come back to this on another podcast because it, it speaks to so much of these topics, so much is here. But if you were to go over to Romans 9, um, well, let's continue with the, un, the un, unconditional part, and then we're going to get to the unfair part, okay. right? Okay. Because in, um, in Romans 9... It says in verse, um, let's start in verse 10, and he's, and he's making an argument here about um, whom God has chosen out of um, ethnic Israel, right? Because the argument is going to be, well, uh, you know, God has chosen Israel ethnically, and Paul's argument is, well, not really. He's chosen some of ethnic Israel, not all of ethnic Israel. And, um, and his argument is that um, it was Isaac of the sons of Abraham. Isaac was the one that was chosen. And, um, and even Isaac had two sons, and it wasn't both of them that were chosen. And we'll pick up the argument there in verse 10. And not only so, but when Rebekah, verse 10, Romans 9, verse 10, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were, and, and, and don't miss this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue or might stand. Look what it says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau hated he, he, he belabors this point. They hadn't been born. They had done nothing good or bad, not because of works. He didn't look down the corridors of time and go, Jacob won't believe me. Esau won't. I'll choose Jacob. No, the text is plain. They hadn't been born. They had done nothing good or bad. Decision wasn't based on any works of theirs at all. Any goodness or badness in either one of them, there was no decision, nothing in them uh, contributed to the decision-making process. In fact, it says, but so that God's purposes of choosing might continue. Period. So there cannot be a condition in man that uh, that, um, contributes to this or um, it would would make God unjust. It would. Uh, Verse 16 of that same chapter 
So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's the result. That's what, that, that's what Paul's arguing. Right. He's saying, if all of this is true, and when we know it is, he's, he, he, in fact, verse 14, what should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That was the question you asked, right? right? How, what will you say about the person who'd say, well, that seems unfair, right? right. What am I supposed to do? If I, if I can't resist his will, which is what it's going to say, Right. right. If I if I can't resist his will, then then how does God hold me responsible? Well, we'll answer that in just a second. But is God unfair? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. By no means. He says to Moses, though, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the person who determines who gets mercy, the person who determines who gets compassion is God. Right. So then. Here's the result of that. Here is the, 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 the resulting thought, the resulting position. This is where man is supposed to land. In, um, after hearing that information, here's where we're supposed to, uh, the, the result, what we're supposed to understand. It's not, it, then it depends not on human will. Where is human will in, the, in, in, in salvation? Non-existent. It is not on human will or exertion, which means work. So man's will has nothing to do with salvation. Man's work has nothing to do with salvation, but God who what has mercy. The argument from the beginning to end here is God is the, the sole determining factor. His purpose and his decision, his mind is the sole determiner on who receives mercy and who doesn't receive mercy. And he makes those decisions based in him and not you. And then there's the example that Paul follows up with there in verse 17. Mm -hmm. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Mm -hmm. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, um, well, how can God hold me accountable? Right. You know, the argument is, 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 is really unbelievable. Um, it's supernatural. It really is that we wouldn't have made this up. He, Paul is going back and he's, he's taking these people all the way back to the two most important figures in their life, Moses, Moses. and Pharaoh. One held them in, in, in slavery and the other was their physical redeemer, right? The right. one that the Lord used to bring them out. But, and he says, interesting enough here, that the distinction between Moses and Pharaoh is only God's mercy. Right. That's the point he's making. He's saying there was no distinction between Moses and Pharaoh except for God. He's going to go on to argue that these two men were two lumps that were pulled from the same lump of clay. They took one glob of clay, the potter did, and he separated it in two pieces. And out of one lump, he made Moses. And out of the other lump, he made Pharaoh. That's the argument that's being put forth here. And God can make one for honorable use if he wants, and he can make one for dishonorable use if he wants. And it doesn't disparage who God is. No, it doesn't, because God is going to be glorified in both. Right. But to answer your question, Paul, how will you say then to me, how does he find fault? Verse 19, who can resist his will? If this is the case, if God creates, 
you know, and he creates one for honorable and another for dishonorable. If he created one and chooses to show mercy and another and chooses not to, or even to harden, what, what am I supposed to say? And here's where Paul, in essence, says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 20, shut your mouth. That's what he says. Look what it says. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You've, you, I, I, I'm expositing at this point. He is saying, you've confused your role. You think that you can speak to the creator, Mr. Creation? You don't have the right to answer God and, and, and to question God on his intents and purposes in his creation. He can create his creation. He can do what he wants with his creation, and you don't have the right to talk back to him. And that's, that's Paul's answer to that question. And, and let's just say, that why Paul could say that is because is God ever going to be unjust or un, uh, un, um, unfair? I don't like to say unfair, but is he ever going to be unjust? Is he always going to be consistent with his nature? Well, he even said earlier, he said, is there injustice with God? And he said, by no means, in no right. way, absolutely not. Under no circumstances is God unjust. Yeah. In fact, we ought to talk about this for a moment because in the context of, of salvation, we need to recognize those who receive salvation r- receive justice served on Christ. And they receive justice, I mean, mercy in the context of justice, right? Or right. justice in the context of mercy, however you understand it. That's the reality. For those that he leaves in their sin, they receive only what's due. No one receives injustice, injustice right. in this. So no, God is not unjust because he never acts outside of justice with either person. He exercises justice and, 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 and judicial... Um, uh, consequences to sin on the person he leaves in their sin. They like to be in their sin, by the way. Oh, they're yeah. not looking to get out yeah. of it. Pharaoh liked his hardened heart. Okay. But on the other person, he's not unjust because he doesn't just overlook their sin. He exercises the, the, the righteous consequences of sin against Christ on their behalf. Right. And there are no people, um, that have ever lived on earth that are wanting to be saved and God is saying, no, I'm not going to choose you. No. But th- th- there are, there's no injustice like that. And immediately that comes as a thought to the minds of those who would um, push back against this. They would say, they would think, they would actually think that there would be people out there who want to be saved and God is slamming the door in their face and saying, I'm not choosing you. Yeah, Romans 3.11 says no one seeks after God. Right. So outside of God doing a miraculous work and converting in regeneration their right. hearts and giving them new affections, they don't want God. Right. That's what I was saying just a moment ago. They're not looking to get out of their sin. No. Because they men love their sin. Now, they, they may hate the consequences that come to them because of their sins, um, whatever hardships and um, pains and sufferings that come to them because of their sin, but they don't hate their sin. They well, love the darkness more than the light. Yeah. In fact, John 3 says that clearly. Right. Uh, you know, that is the, that is the testimony of John 3 uh, that men do. In fact, he tells Nicodemus there, uh, talking about that, he doesn't say, Nicodemus, you can't come. You won't, you can't receive my witness. He says, you won't. 
I tell you the truth and you won't listen to me, Nicodemus. Right. It wasn't a, an inadequate understanding or a lack of information on Nicodemus's part. Nicodemus didn't like what he heard. He liked self-made holiness and he wanted to stand before God in his own righteousness. And, and that just isn't an option for man. Right, right. So it isn't that that's the case that uh, yeah, n- n- God leaves men in their sin. He doesn't. Um, but you know, one of the things that would help us think through this too is to understand that I heard uh, somebody say the other day, uh, and I think they were quoting Finney or somebody, but it was amazing. They said, you know, all those people in hell, if they just had one opportunity to 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 repent, they would. And, you know, they would, if they could have one more day to ask Jesus in their heart. or what, That's not the testimony of Scripture. Yeah. The testimony of Scripture is that man left in his natural state always is at war with God. And that means that even those who are in hell right now, if you could open the door and say, come out, bow the knee to God, what they would do is slam the door. Well, it's, it's the same. We have a special... Um glimpse into this as the end of Revelation with all the wrath of God being poured out on the earth and and the end even with all of the pain and the suffering of God's wrath they still shake their fist at God and say we will not submit yeah and so if we understand that that it takes a work of God to convert the heart and mind and will of man then we're not doing an injustice God's not doing an injustice to man there are no people begging please please let me be a Christian and he's going no not you that's not the case at all right here's the the, the answer of to, to get make this clear he he God has taken a, a sea of lost people. And has chosen to take all of those rebels who wouldn't of themselves choose God, but happily would swim to their utter ruin and drown in in their sin and love every second of it. God plucks for himself people out of that. They're not reaching for him. They're fighting him tooth and nail. And he converts their minds and their hearts and their wills, breathes new life into them, and then transforms transforms them. And that's the testimony of the life-giving nature of Christ. It's not as if that they're, they're going down for the last time and their arms out, just throw me a lifeline, Jesus, and he's going, not you. That's a misrepresentation of what's going on. Right. These are people that are already dead at the bottom of the sea and... Um, and God is going down of and grabbing them up and breathing life into them and creating them anew. Right. And so that if God determines to leave some to themselves. Mm-hmm. He's not unjust. He's not unjust to do that. No. Because they get what they deserve. That he saves some by grace elevates who God is. It magnifies his mercy. And Romans 9, the argument's going to go on to say that God wanting to be glorified for all of his glory and for all of his majesty and for all of his attributes, right? will leave some in their sin so that people can see that he is righteous and just, right? And he will pull some out of their sin and, 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 and conform them to the image of his son so that they can see his 
majesty and grace and mercy. So he says he's going to be honored and glorified for both of those things. And that's why he does what he does. And we as the creation don't get to question him on it. Okay, Philip. So what you're saying to me that God has already determined and he has elected a people um, that will be saved. So then... If I could only convince you. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, then uh, what about free will? What about it? It's, I mean, I have a choice. I, I, I mean, that's. I need to be able to choose God. I, I have uh, an ability to do that. I, uh, I, 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 it would be totally unfair if I didn't get a choice. If you don't give me a choice, how then is this right? Well, first of all, I mean, does God have a choice? Can your choice? Can you have autonomy and he have autonomy at the same time? No. Okay, so somebody's going to have to be, get autonomy and the other person not. I would say that uh, the ruler this, of the universe would have autonomy. Yes, oh. and, and the creation probably not. But second of all, uh, I would say that um, free will—the way that most people articulate it—and we even talked about this in the last podcast—is um, um, inconsistent with the biblical understanding of, of freedom. We've already looked at a couple of texts that say our salvation is not contingent upon the will of man. Right. A specific, I mean, it could not be more explicit. It, therefore, so it is not of him who wills, right? Mm-hmm. Even says as much in John chapter one, I think verse 13, that we, our salvation is not, we are not born of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. So that being said, our will has nothing to do with it, but we do have a free will that is constrained by our nature. Um, so we're free to do what our nature um, desires and to fulfill the passions of our flesh and the testimony of Scripture is that's all we do in a natural state. Right. Okay. So I'm not saying you don't... We are volitional creatures, and I like that statement better, or the way some people say it is we have a creaturely will or... um, and I, I'm not going to say that we don't ultimately choose God in the sense that... Because we do. Um, he doesn't drag me kicking and screaming into heaven. What he does is creates in me a new heart, and when he does, uh, that heart brings with it new affections and new desires and and um, and a freedom from the slavery of my natural passions and affections before. So I am freed from what I was enslaved to, willingly enslaved to before. I've been freed from that. So um, I have new affections, new desires, and and, and now um, I, I'm not going kicking and screaming into heaven. I, I, I long for heaven. I'm because, running to heaven. Yes, because I have a desire. My arms are wide open. I want Christ more than anything. Right. The idea of freedom that you just spoke about um, is exactly what Jesus was speaking to the Israelites in John chapter eight. Mm-hmm. The freedom of spiritual slave from spiritual slavery. Yeah. So that's another discussion. But um, let me just ask then, if you're telling me this and this is true, then why do we do evangelism? God's already chosen. Everybody's going to. Oh, saved. this is the this is the motivation for evangelism. If if man. If man is constrained according to the Bible, if the Bible is true about the uh, and gives us a, a, a realistic biblical, I mean a, a biblical anthropology, what does man? If it's right about what man, what it says about man, then man cannot and will not ever turn to God. He's morally doesn't desire God. He wants what God offers, but he doesn't want God. If that's true, then everybody goes to hell. Every single person goes to hell, and, 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 and your evangelism efforts are futile. 
But if God is going to save a people, that's what the scripture says, and they won't be lost because God, knowing whom he would, loving whom he would, casting his love upon them, foreknowing them, predestines them to salvation, and it guarantees, because he does all the work, to bring them in, that effectual call comes through a gospel call, a proclamation. This is why I evangelize, because I know that God has redeemed a people. He's already purchased them. The work is done. It's accomplished. It's, it's, it's finished. He isn't making people savable. He is saving a people. Done. Right. He even says in John that 6, that he comes to do the will of the Father. And then later on, he says, and he's accomplished. In John 17, he says, I've accomplished what you gave me to do. Right. I've accomplished it. And, 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 and I guess what I'm trying to say is, if that's the case, and that's the reality of Scripture, then we, we evangelize because we know that God is saving His people, and He uses the means of, of humans to, to, to proclaim the majesty and the glory of the gospel, and He draws people to Himself there. It is the only motivation for evangelism, because it is the only... Um, biblical understanding of salvation that guarantees people will be saved. Right. And faith comes by hearing. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the preaching has, the preaching of the gospel has to be um, presented. The gospel has to be proclaimed because that is the means that God has chosen. Yes. So then if you're telling me that, then I've got one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, why go to church? Why pray? Why be why be obedient? I mean, God's already determined all these things, right? Mm-hmm. He's sovereign. He's already determined these things. So you're telling me I don't have free will. He's determined these things. I didn't so, say you don't have free will. I just said you have a creaturely will. <laughs> I, I'm speaking as one who would be arguing against this. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's what they would say. <laughs> but I would argue with them and say, I didn't say you didn't have free will. Okay. But, I, you're, but, but you may not say it explicitly, but you're um, implying that... That I don't have free will to choose, and I can't. Make I'm just these... implying that you don't understand the definition of free biblically. <laughs> but yes, I yeah, understand. You, why you understand would you pray? The question. Why, why would pray? I pray? Why you know? Why even go to church? Why is it a big deal? Why do I have to be obedient? I mean, God's already determined, and uh-huh. some are going to go to heaven, some are uh, not. Because God's ordination not only the ends, but the means to the ends, and He says He works through His people. He works through them in their proclamation of the gospel to bring people to salvation. And he works through the prayers of his people uh, to, to, to teach them to rely and trust in his sovereign work in hand. And then when they see the satisfaction of God working through their prayers, they trust and believe all the more. It's a wonderful thing, but he, he uses the means of prayer and he brings about the ends. Yes, he's ordained it all. But that's why we pray. Right. And but and here's the, the short answer. Because he said to. Right. That's enough, isn't it? Right. Well, and what a privilege it is to cooperate with the work of the Spirit in this life. Mm-hmm. Um, I would rather be obedient than not be obedient. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would rather realize and think that God has predetermined or uh, predestined these things um, and still be obedient because it's a better life. It is. Um, well... Um, let's just close with some text, okay? Because uh, those are brief answers. And again, again, from the beginning, we've said that it's not comprehensive, it's not exhaustive, but hopefully it's helpful. But think about what Ephesians 1, 
beginning in verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. In love he predestined us. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. That is the bottom line of this. Mm -hmm. Um, His unconditional election is for the praise of his glorious grace. And it ought to be a very humbling, um, it ought to be a very evangelism inspiring, it ought to be a worship motivating thought and uh, impression upon our minds and our hearts that he has done this for the praise of his glory and grace. It's not about me, and it's not about anything that I would have had any uh, response or preconditioned response. It's all about his grace. It's all about him. You you know, it's funny that you you repeated those two lines three times each, but here's what's funny about that text. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, and that he, uh, so that we are who are first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, that uh, we are the guarantee of inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. He actually does say that three different times. Right. Establishing for us the very purpose for his choosing so that his glory would be manifest to, to all. Right. So um, to wrap up this episode of our discussion on the doctrines of grace, unconditional election doesn't in any way disparage God. It doesn't in any way take away from evangelism. It doesn't in any way um, make man um, um, have certain conditions that are met um, that God foresees and he chooses. So all of this then um, becomes to uh, the praise of his glory, to honor him, to recognize him. Now, then, if unconditional election is part of um, the, the, the doctrines of grace, um, how does it how does it manifest itself? This is going to be for the next podcast. How does... The work get accomplished because man is radically depraved, but he's elected from the foundation of the world. So then what needs to take place for him to be um, transformed and changed? What kind of um, work of God needs to be accomplished in that man? That will be our next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Asking for a Friend podcast. If what you've heard today has been helpful to you, please subscribe. On behalf of the elders of BBC, I invite you to a worship service at Believer's Baptist Church this coming Sunday. The Bible study hour begins at 9.15 and the worship service begins at 10.30. Grace and peace. Peace.